You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for us to talk to the Naked Scientist and, of course, answering your questions on 011 883 702 and on SMS on 31702. Uh, Dr. Smith, good afternoon. Always a pleasure speaking Hi, to Goose. you. How are you? Very well, thank you. And how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, it, you know, it's, we're getting towards the end of the year. My mm. Christmas present is that we have a vaccine on the horizon for coronavirus. So we have something to look forward to in 2021. Yeah. The downside is that we have big bird flu problems here in the southeast of England, as do Japan and many other countries in Europe. It seems that uh, one pandemic's not enough for the world. We need a flu pandemic amongst birds, admittedly, yes. on top of the COVID problem we're all having. So this has been called Japan's worst bird flu outbreak on record. It's now apparently affecting about 20% of the country's um, uh, bird farms. And there's been, you know, ordering, there's been more culls that have been ordered after there have been more poultry deaths. Should we be concerned well, really, these things do happen, and and they happen fairly frequently. And the reason they happen, it's just a fact of life. And when you have, because these viruses circulate in wild birds, and when they get into domestic flocks, because domestic flocks are kept in really highly intensive conditions, in other words, you've got lots of birds all packed in close together, it goes through like a bushfire. And once you get an outbreak, it spreads really rapidly. The strain of flu that's causing headaches in Japan is called H5N8. And it's the same strain, actually, that we've got here in the southeast of England. And a number of farms have had to be closed. And now all birds, all domestic birds from today have to be kept indoors as a precaution. Mm -hmm. And by indoors, that means in barns and so on. Because if it's in wild birds, the wild birds can give it to the domestic flocks and they then get outbreaks. So the rationale behind keeping birds indoors is that it minimizes contact with wild birds because otherwise the wild birds come down into the environments where the domestic birds are, are eating, feeding, drinking. And that association is enough to spread flu among them. Hmm. So it's it's kind of to be expected when you've got intensive farming and one has to be vigilant for this kind of thing. It's a bad year for Japan, though. As you say, a very significant number of their prefectures, the different regions in the country, have got outbreaks now. There are about 300 million chickens, either for eating or for laying eggs. That's their resident bird population in uh, Japan at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not unusual to have to cull a million birds in a go sometimes to tr try to bring these outbreaks under control. Let's hope it doesn't come to that for them uh, or, or um, in our turkey farms here in the southeast of England because that's the other one. It's, everyone wants their turkey for Christmas but they, they might not get it at this rate. Hmm. Is this particular bird flu zoonotic? Uh, can it be you know, passed from a non-human um, non animal to a human? Potentially, but like all these things, the the key is whether or not it's an efficient process and whether it can actually spread efficiently in the people it gets into. But as a precaution, you try to minimize these sorts of outbreaks because when flu gets into an appreciably large number of animals, it's got a higher likelihood of mutating into a way that could facilitate a jump. The virus we've been very worried about in the past is the so-called H5N1 strain of flu. This is a different strain. It's H5N8. 
and these viruses don't spread very efficiently among humans. We know that they can occasionally make the jump in people who have very close contact with very large numbers of birds. Effectively, you're creating a lot of rolls of the virological dice in order to facilitate a jump, but it doesn't seem to spread efficiently among humans, at least for the moment, and so people are not so worried about the human impact of this apart from the economic one, because obviously it's robbing people of their livelihoods. It's also robbing people of their dinner. Hmm. Um, and, you know, at any given time when we, you know, you look at reports about, um, you know, potential uh, viruses that are in nature, which perhaps we don't know enough about or that aren't for now zoonotic. Um, when do you, when does or do we have any idea of when we should worry about a virus that is in nature, perhaps among wild birds in this instance? When should we, because there are any number of them in nature at any given time, when should we worry? When is it a concern for us? And does our proximity to animals because of farming, because of agriculture, does it make the risk for a, vi a virus becoming zoonotic? Does it make it higher? Uh, right. We should never not worry because there's always the theoretical risk. There are many, many strains of flu out there circulating in wild birds, and if you domesticate birds, you pack in lots and lots of animals together, making transmission of any kind of infection between them easy. And you also bring them into close contact with humans, making a, a possible jump between birds and humans easier. And if you've got lots of birds together and you're feeding them, there's a higher likelihood that wild birds will associate with them and spawn outbreaks among them. So we should never not have our eye on the ball because there's always that risk. In terms of whether or not it poses a threat to humans, some viruses are better at jumping the species barrier than others. Flu is naturally an infection of wild birds, which periodically, when it jumps from birds into humans, a particular strain of flu that's got some degree of optimization to enable it to infect us in the first place is required for that to happen. But when it makes that jump, it has the potential to cause a pandemic. When we have had flu pandemics, which happen roughly every 30 years in the past, they have come because a new strain of flu to which no one on earth has any kind of uh, immunity introduces itself into the human population. And because of the way we live and the way we travel, just look at what's happened with COVID, you get very rapid transmission and you get a flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it claims lots of victims and it leaves in its wake a group of people who are immune or, or resistant to the infection. And the infection itself then slowly uh, attenuates, becomes weaker over time until it just sinks into the background of, of circulating strains of flu that cause epidemics and outbreaks seasonally, but doesn't have the same pandemic potential it once did. That happens every 30 years and, and it is spawned from birds and therefore domestication of birds is a risk factor for that happening, which is why we keep an eye on it. 15 minutes before 3 o'clock, chatting to the Naked Scientist for this week. Dr. Chris Smith is on the line to answer your questions on 11 uh, Joe and Kilani, Colin and Rustenberg, we see you. If you'd like to get your question in, you can also send us your SMSs on 31702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's 13 minutes before 3 o'clock. We are in The Naked Scientist for this week. Dr. Chris Smith on the line to answer your questions on 11 and your SMSs on 31702. Just before the break, we're speaking about uh, the bird flu that's been, uh, that's been found in parts of Japan and now also parts of England and whether or not we should be cautious or concerned about developments there. But let's go to Joe in Kelani. Uh, Joe, you have a question about beaches and COVID. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Smith. 
I want to ask you about the risk of transmission of the virus amongst bathers uh, on the coast with our impending summer holiday. Hi, Joe. Uh, the answer is that uh, transmission of the virus occurs through close contact, mainly through the respiratory route. In other words, people coughing out virus particles and droplets of water and moisture with virus in them, and then third parties breathing them in. This happens much more efficiently inside than it does outside for a start. So being outside, it's also much easier to stay a safe distance from other people. So therefore, outside is a good thing, inside is a less good thing. We're not sure about transmission of the virus through water. It has been detected at sewage works. People are talking about using the detection at sewage works as a monitoring system to pick up when there are potential outbreaks brewing in different settlements. But what they're recovering from the sewage works are the genetic fingerprints of the virus rather than viable virus itself. That said, this family of viruses do transmit through the sewage system and the first outing of SARS back in 2002 to 2003 did have outbreaks that were linked to the sewage system. Therefore, theoretically, if you have contaminated water where people are, there's a risk that people could pick up the virus from that source, although I'd say the risk, given the huge dilution effect of being in the sea, would be very, very low. So I think going to the beach puts you outside and in fresh air and therefore at lower risk to start with. Being in the sea, there's never no risk whenever you go about anything, and there are other things that you could pick up from the ocean as well as coronavirus infection, but the risk there, while theoretically possible, I think is extremely small. So I'm much comforted by the fact that summer is coming and people are going to be outside because viruses spread much less well when people are outside and far apart from each other than when they're cooped up indoors. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your question, Joe and Kilani. Let's go to Rustenburg to Colin. Colin, good afternoon. We've lost Colin. Let's go to Pretoria. Adrian, good afternoon. Hello, Chris. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to ask you a couple of questions. I've got two questions. I just quickly, uh, in order to save time, uh, 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 formulate them. The first question I have is, how do you explain the highly variable survival figures of ventilated patients for COVID within Europe with assumingly similar health standards. I remember the UK had one of the highest, 12%. Second question, how do you explain the fact that the UK ordered um, the Pfizer vaccine even though the AstraZeneca vaccine was developed in-house in the UK? Thank you very much. Thank you for your question. Okay, well, let's let's start with the um, vaccine question because that one's, uh, in some respects, easier. The answer is that uh, the UK have bought in uh, seven different types of vaccine. They have prior orders placed with seven different manufacturers for seven different types of vaccine. And the reason for doing that is that you didn't, you never, we talked about bird flu earlier, this is not a horrible pun, you never put all your eggs in one basket because it's not a given when they were having to make these orders that vaccines were actually going to ever become available, let alone one vaccine of one type from one company. So therefore, in the same way as you spread your bets on the stock exchange and you spread your bets at the race course, what you always do is to place a range of orders with a range of different possible suppliers 
to maximise your chances of, of getting uh, a, a, so, a solid supply chain of vaccine. Uh, so that's the reason that they did that. We didn't know, for instance, that Moderna was going to be able to produce a vaccine, so orders were placed much later with Moderna. Um, AstraZeneca, whilst it, it is based in the UK, that's where it's headquartered and that's where the vaccine originates from. Yes, there's a big order been placed with them, 100 million doses, but uh, we still require that vaccine to be approved. It's not approved yet. It's got to go to our regulator and our regulator to say they judge it to be safe and effective. So we're still waiting on that. Now, in terms of the survival figures, this is a very strange virus. In fact, some doctors have said this is the strangest thing they've ever had to deal with in their careers. And we just don't know the answer to this. And we're learning all the time, but it's a weird thing how you can have, uh, on the one hand, people who have perhaps up to half or two-thirds of the time asymptomatic infection. They have no symptoms of coronavirus whatsoever. And they'll be sitting side by side with a person who, if they catch it, has a high chance of mortality. And also, why is it that a young person who catches this can be absolutely fine, but someone who's in their 80s has a 15% chance of catching it and succumbing to it? Again, very strange. Why is it that two-thirds of cases who end up in intensive care and pass away are men? Why is it that men are therefore much more likely to succumb to coronavirus than women of the same age and with the same health background? There are many of these unknowns, and to a certain extent, it's going to be down to an immune response. It might reflect also past exposure to viruses similar to the coronavirus and how effective your immune system is at fighting off the new coronavirus because the people who develop the severe problems with it, what appears to happen is that the immune system fails and it's a first attempt to control the virus and it then goes into a sort of immune tailspin driven by almost frustration on the part of the immune system that it can't control the infection. And as this uh, immune response intensifies, instead of being damaged and killed by a virus, you're then killed and damaged by your own immune system. And the immune system can access all areas and, and it causes multi-system damage, causing insults to different parts of the body, ranging from the brain to the lungs, heart, liver, kidneys and pancreas. So it causes a metabolic syndrome in the aftermath of the acute infection. And some people seem to be more susceptible to that than others. But at the moment, we just don't know why. But sorry, does it explain the variable survival figures within Europe? No, it doesn't. And um, we just don't understand why it is that some people do much better and some people don't do so much better. To a certain extent, acute care makes a difference. How quickly people receive intervention, how quickly they get onto oxygen. We're finding evidence that if you get oxygen sooner, it makes your immune system work in a different way. There's, there's data I'm being shown by people at my own institution showing that the way in which your immune system matures its response is very sensitive to the level of oxygen. And if you deprive an individual of oxygen, you can affect the way the immune response kicks in. There's also differences in, in management and treatments, which vary from one place to the other. But no, we just don't know the answer to this, and it's very confusing. Sorry, uh, another que question to my first question. Do you think that in six months' time that one of the vaccines will be the front runner and it will be like a, a, a vaccine for first-class patients? Uh, I heard the term vaccine nationalism is coming up in the press recently. Do you think there will be an issue like this, that one vaccine will outclass the other one? Or? I, I don't actually because, uh, and it's a simple fact of supply, and at the moment manufacturers cannot knock these things out fast enough, even if they wanted to. Uh, 
So that's a limiting factor. So the minute you've got multiple vaccines, people will access whatever vaccine they can access because it's any port in a storm. Also, the vaccines that are being produced, um, so far we've seen the results of Moderna's vaccine, Pfizer's vaccine and AstraZeneca's vaccine. They seem to be producing broadly similar results. And uh, even if you take the lower results from AstraZeneca, one of their dosing regimens produced a 60% protection rate, but that's still excellent in terms of what we expect from a vaccine. That's very good. And so as a result, I think probably because some of them are more expensive, some have certain restrictions and constraints on how they can be distributed and stored. Some uh, are easier to transport to certain places. And as a result, I think that that partly geography, cost and these other factors will all help to, to keep many of these players in the market. I don't think we're going to see all 40-something vaccines that are currently in clinical trials making it to market all at the same time. I think there will be some obvious bestsellers. But at the same time, I think that there's certainly a market to support a range of products which are suitable horses for different virological courses. Mm. I think we have time for just one more question. Let's go to Kevin in Northcliffe. Kevin, good afternoon. Hi. I've got a question um, about the tests. Uh, are the tests actually testing for coronavirus or, or something that indicates you might have it? Oh, hi, Kevin. The answer is that uh, both. And some of the tests that we're doing are PCR tests. These are genetic tests where swabs are taken and then we extract from the swab genetic material. And if there is virus growing in the back of the nose and throat, then the virus genetic material will also be recovered on the swab. It's then copied millions of times and a special probe is added that can test for the presence of certain parts of the genetic code exclusive to the new coronavirus. And if it matches up, the probe lights up and we can see a colour change and that tells us this person's got coronavirus genetic information. But that doesn't tell you, and this is the problem, it doesn't tell you they've got viable virus in them. Because in the aftermath of the infection, when the immune system has destroyed all the viable virus, there nevertheless can be some residual virus genetic information left behind lurking in mucus and on tissue surfaces. And that can produce a positive because the person had the infection, but they haven't got it right now. So one constraint of that is it can't tell you if you're still infectious right now. The other kinds of tests that are being done are what we call antigen tests. And these are forming the basis of these lateral flow assays, the things a bit like a pregnancy test, but you take a swab, extract some of the material from the back of the nose and throat and drip it onto this thing about the size of or the length of your index finger and about an inch wide. And, and it uses antibodies that are color-coded to detect the physical parts of the virus that are on the virus outer coat if they're there. And that tells you, yes, you've actually got virus particles in you at the moment and you might be infectious. So that can tell you you are infectious. The other test that's being done is an antibody test where you take some blood and you look for the antibodies that the immune system produces when it fights off coronavirus. That can only tell you if you've been exposed to the virus. It can't actually tell you whether or not you are still infected because you make some antibodies in the course of actually fighting it off. So you might catch it very early in the production of the antibodies and late in the infection as your body's removing the infection. But the presence of antibodies can say you have been exposed to this infection. So we use all of those test types uh, at various points in time to, to find out who's got it, 
who's had it and who might be infectious right now. Mm. Dr. Smith, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. That's where we need to leave it. And that's how we wrap up The Naked Scientist for this week. If you are going away, remember to take 702 with you on the 702 app. So you haven't contacted our insurance to see if you can save on your